This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Before you get stuck into your podcast, I'm Jonathan Agnew talking you through a very new mini-series hitting Test Match Special. It's called Project Ashes. Over the last year, I've been speaking to the people who are in charge of England's attempts to win Down Under. It's loud. They let you know that they don't like you. Got to try and embrace it if you can. We're under no illusions. You know, in our last 10 tests, we're 9-0 down. England have only won once in Australia in the last 34 years. But could that change this winter? And in comes Pat Cummins from the far end. He bowls to Stokes, who hammers it for four! Come up against this baggy green thing that they keep talking about, and I'd love to, you know, stick one of them. This is Project Ashes. Listen on BBC Sounds. Now, back to your podcast. You're listening to the TMS Podcast from BBC Radio 5 Live. I'm Eleanor Oldroyd and welcome to another bonus TMS Podcast. It's the second part in our series of Ashes Tour Tales from the Test Match Specialty here in Australia. Don't forget, we're here bringing you full commentary from the 7th of December. Today, we talk Brisbane as England prepare to begin the series at the Gabba. Well, welcome to Australia. The sun is out. The sea is lapping gently on the shore. The seagulls are flying around. We're sitting in the shade, of course, and we're all extremely excited about the cricket getting started in Brisbane. And with us here, correspondent Jonathan Agnew, who is here on his ninth Ashes tour. Stephen Finn, who's been involved in three Ashes trips, including the last time England won here 10 years ago. TMS commentator Simon Mann, and to add historical and statistical background, Andy Zaltzman. Right, let's talk about Queensland first of all. Let's talk about Brisbane. Let's talk about waking up in the morning, going down to breakfast in your hotel, the excitement of a day at the Gabba and picking up the local newspaper, Agus, the notorious Courier Mail. What's it, what's it like? They're, I mean, their media can be particularly rough in Queensland. Well, it can. I mean, it just feels finally as if the day has arrived because under normal circumstances, of course, the tour have been going for perhaps a month beforehand, you know, starting off fairly quietly, a warm-up game in, in Perth, and then a, maybe three first-class matches, and of course, it generally gaining momentum as you go, uh, usually Perth, South Australia, and then uh, that game in, in Hobart, usually, against someone like Australia A, is obviously a very important game, and, and lots of potential places up for grabs, perhaps, or, or, or whatever it might be, so it, it's the whole general build-up is is that steady progression towards yeah the first day and that first morning down there in the in the breakfast room in the hotel inevitably there, there would normally be England fans packed in there ready to go they'd, they'd have been up probably jet lagged uh, probably, probably been up all night some of them and landed the night before you know uh, and, and 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 they're ready to go and and then it's, it is it's just it's just that sort of culmination of the weeks of, of preparation all building up to finally getting underway I think it's that sense of it's a clean slate as well. It's nil-nil, that real build-up to the first day, the first test. What's going to happen? And then, of course, it all goes horribly wrong. Yeah. Often, <laughs> the case anyway, it's yes. been the, the, the case for England. But it, it is that, isn't it? What, what is going to happen? How is the Ashes going to turn out? Is it going to be different uh, this time for England? And think back to 2010-11, there was a sense it, it could be different this time. And yeah, as, it, as it turned out, it was. What was it like arriving in Brisbane for that first test in 10-11, in Finney? Did, did, was there a feeling? Did you have that feeling as well? Because 
you know, the Australians will do everything to believe that the Gabba is this extraordinary place, the Gabbatoire. Yeah, they take great pride in calling it that and making your life uncomfortable. I think Queenslanders in general enjoy making it hostile when you come into Brisbane um, and you get that from the moment you get off the plane and the cameras are in your face when you, you step off the plane in Brisbane. There's guys there accosting you, usually the big players. So I was just hiding at the back thinking, like, why are they shoving cameras in Kevin Peterson's face here? And he's walking through the airport saying, get out my face, get out my face. And it's just that hostility as soon as you get to Brisbane and that goes all the way to your journey to the ground. There's You get guys like in cork hats, banging on the team bus because they get there so early because they want to see the English team arrive and, and be there for when you get to the ground. And, and yeah, I remember quite vividly on some of those mornings where you're rolling up to the ground, especially day one, and the bus can't get through. The bus has to like go down this concourse and parks under the stand, but it's like this little private entrance and you have to go through all the fans to get there. I remember vividly, like the first morning, the bus got stuck and all of a sudden they're like, banging on the window <laughs> banging on welcome to the gabatoire boys and you're, like, and you're all sat in there on the bus like knowing that you're playing a game in a couple of hours just being like yeah thanks thanks a lot guys so they would take great pleasure and great pride in that first test match being a hostile environment and they're very good at it and that hostile environment was, I mentioned the Courier Mail oh, well, Jonathan just, just tell, us, tell us about that I mean because they well, particularly had it in Stuart for Stuart Broad, Broad they, they? cancelled him really I mean there was a team photograph up there I remember they put on the back page and he was just like a sort of silhouetted out so what this, it was obviously Stuart Broad broad shape uh, and they just refused to mention him they, they, they called uh, they, they listed the likely team and another fast bowler which they would, they, they it, was, it was 27 year old medium pace bowler <laughs> that's, that's they what refused they to use the word yeah. broad yeah. and there were t-shirts going around yeah. Stuart Broad bloke. Uh, people will be wearing that all around. I felt very, I mean, you know, I felt very sorry for Apparently Stuart. he's still got a coffee cup. He's got a coffee club yeah. cup which says Stuart Broad is a really <laughs> bloke, which he says he gets out just at the point for, for games when Australia are doing badly. Yeah, and he used that as motivation. He took five for in that test match and yeah. I remember he had a copy of that newspaper in his place and he was like, if I take wickets here or I have a good day and I have to do the press, I'm taking this newspaper and it was a picture of yeah, it was that picture of just like he who must not be named, like he's Lord Voldemort, there on the front, and he walked into the it, press conference with there, it under his arm. Yeah, yeah, he came out, and there it was. He saw the like that. Up yeah. and started reading it. But then after they, they had they had to own him again after that. Didn't they? Yeah. He got five for. Yeah, yeah. And I think even the most grudging Australian realised that after all that build up and everything, actually, you know, he's come out and got five wickets. So he <laughs> and remind us, remind us why they had it in for him. Well, it was, it was because of what happened at, at Trent Bridge, where the Australians still insist that he nicked it to slip, but of course he didn't. He feathered it through to the keeper, who knocked it to slip, who took the catch. So it looked as though he thick-edged it to slip. He stood there, didn't walk, and it was given, it was given not out, and he, he got away with it. And, and that really riled the Australians, which I find extraordinary, really, when you think of how few Australians have walked over the years. I and mean, Broad was just saying, oh, well, I, I did thin-edge it. Everyone saw he thin-edged it, actually, when they saw the replay, thin-edged it through to the keeper. But no, no, one, no self-respecting batter would have walked for that, would they? No Australian would have walked not for that. Not in that game situation, either. And also, it was in the early forays of the DRS system, so people yeah. weren't used to... Um, standing or you didn't just stand and wait for the umpire to make a decision whereas now very very few people um, would walk in that situation I think they'd just wait for the umpire to make a decision I think what actually happened was that he knew he'd nicked it yeah. he was waiting for the umpire to give him out yeah. Yeah, yeah. and then to walk off but of yeah. course the umpire didn't give him out yeah. and therefore he was stuck and they yeah. had no reviews left so. exactly. yeah. and anyway Perfect. the Australians have never forgotten it no. strangely I've enough. got an article here actually from 
Christopher Dorr, who was the Courier Mail's editor, and he, he, he talked about the sort of the build-up to that sort of cancelling of Stuart Broad, and he said, our initial swipe at the brackets friendless Kevin Peterson as the English and South Africans <laughs> arrived in Brisbane was a dress rehearsal to test the mood of the tourists for our assault on the real villain. He said, we had a thought about going after Joe Root, but he seemed unworthy, and Ian Bell, but truthfully... Despite his impressive figures in recent years, most of us can't take him seriously. He'll always be Shane Warne's bunny. So it had to, basically, it had to be it had to be Stuart Broad they went after after that incident at, at Trent Bridge. But Stuart six for eighty one. He he won back their respect. Yeah. yeah. In that in that they test chose match. the wrong target by the, by the sound of it for for that one. Um, it, it was very interesting. I mean, I think the first time that I went to um to the Gabba, uh, I guess four years ago. I thought, wow, I'm so exciting to be inside a big Australian test ground for the first time. You know, that was that, 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 but then you look around and it's, it's actually quite an underwhelming stadium. Oh, it's a horrible ground. <laughs> Thank I you mean, for saying to, that. To, to, to I don't want to get cancelled by the Australians. <laughs> no, but it is. I mean, it's a soulless bowl. Um, which is just exactly identical all the way around. I mean, says there's mustard and yellow seats, and there is not a single feature you can't see beyond it. Uh, so from a commentator's perspective, even though you usually sit right at the very top, you can hardly see anything outside. And there's, it's not like a ground with different stands or anything. It's just a bowl. And it's a huge contrast to what it used to be. It used to be actually a really lovely cricket ground um, although it did have a dog track that ran around it as well so they did they ran dogs around uh, dog racing but used to be able to walk around it and the stands were separate and there was a uh, a, a really lovely area just to the right of where we would sit by the pavilion uh, called the Queensland Cricketers Club and people sit on the grass uh, under parasols drinking a beer or two or something like that and it was a it was a much more relaxed atmosphere to it actually but now it's a cauldron Mm. Uh, I mean, even Melbourne, the MCG has got more features to it than the, than the Gabba, which is just like this, this vast, vast bowl of, of noise. And I'm, I'm sure the atmosphere when you're in it must be incredible when it's full. Cause it just echo around. But anyone who's been, for instance, to, to the Cape Tin at Wellington, uh, this is like a bigger version of, of that. Mm. So what's it like to play in? Yeah, I think one of the most apparent things is the heat inside. I mean, people talk about the humidity and the heat in Brisbane in general. Um, but once you're inside that ground and you're in the middle of it, everything is centred on you. And, and it just gets so hot. And actually, when it's hot like that, it becomes hard to think. And that's why, talking about the acclimatisation to Brisbane, that's why England would have chosen to have their build-up in Brisbane so they didn't have to move. Um, that's why in 2010-11, why England sent the bowling group there early in order to try and acclimatise and accustom themselves to those conditions so the one thing that you do really notice as a player like the noise is by the by because you're used to playing in grounds that are noisy you play in India where it's just this wall of noise and that's a bit what it's like until you get really close to the boundary and then you can hear the people giving you your individual abuse but when you're in the middle of the ground it's just it's just noise but it is that heat that that really just hits you and makes it really hard to concentrate which actually makes some of the guys' performances there over the years, the, that innings that Cook, Trot and Strauss all scored, the big runs, it makes that feat even more impressive just for the whole situation. So Andy, remind us of some of the, the stats around the Gabba as a ground as far as England are concerned. Because it's not, it's not always been a picture of failure, has it? As, as Finney's just said. Uh, not always. There have been uh, 21 previous Ashes tests at the Gabba. England have won four and lost 12. So it's not a great record, but it's not, you know, completely disastrous and that you know in recent years as England have struggled in in basically all the Ashes series here apart from 
the 1011 series since they um, since the Mike Gatting tour in '86 seven. Uh, th- those stats have been skewed uh, recently. But now, if you look at the, those 16 victories, to sort of given uh, illustration of the importance of of Brisbane and uh, which has generally been the first test on the series, 12 victories for Australia, four for England. The winning team at Brisbane has gone on to win the Ashes 14 of those 16 times, including the last 11 instances in a row since England came back from a Brisbane battering in 1954-55. There haven't actually been that many close Ashes games at Brisbane. Of those 16 um, positive results, there's only been one win by either five wickets or fewer or under 150 runs. And that was uh, one of the most extraordinary games in Ashes history. We can delve back into the distant past, 1950-51. Australia, 228 all out on day one. Um, viewed by the press as an outstanding bowling performance by England. And then it rained in the days of uncovered pitches. There was a rest day and a day washed out. And England then had to bat on a treacherous rain-affected pitch. And as it dried under the sun, these pitches became almost unplayable. So then the next two innings were England 68 for 7 declared, Australia 32 for 7 declared. (laughs) Teams, as they declared, to try and bowl while the pitch was still difficult and then England um, at the end of that that uh, second day of play were uh, six down for 30 and eventually all out for 122 so uh, at one point 19 wickets fell for 81 runs (laughs) which is all action (laughs) well let's focus on the positive I mean Finney what are your memories of that 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 test match that incredible second innings in in 2010 Um, Cook, Trot, Strauss 517 for one, uh, uh, well, it's perfect, perfect day for a bowler, that one, wasn't it? Well, it was, yeah. I spent a lot of my time sleeping underneath the concourse <laughs> in, the, uh, in the dressing room because the first innings, I watched the first four balls and Strauss got out off the fourth ball and I was like, well, I'm not watching any more balls of this test match because I'm the bad luck omen. <laughs> um, so so that, and that's the way your mind works as a player. You try and find a spot in the dressing room where you don't lose wickets and mine happened to be with the other bowlers sleeping and just chilling out downstairs. Any so, excuse. Any, any excuse. Uh, absolutely any excuse. You pop up for the milestones. So you go out there for the glory to clap the guys in on the... Um, so it looks like you've been watching the whole time. But then the rest of the time you just disappear back down to the dressing room and rest and recuperate and bear in mind we'd spent a lot of overs in the field that game as well and the second test was coming around quickly so it was important that the guys um, did recover that's my excuse anyway for being down under there but yeah it was it just sort of not disbelief I think because I believe that we could do it and I believe that those players could do it in that moment but you do hear the stories about how at the Gabba the Australians get on top and the opposition team fails but my overriding sense of that partnership or those two partnerships and the way that that innings went, it gave everyone real confidence in the camp that we could actually stand toe-to-toe with these guys and then beat them. And then we proved that in the second Test match. For somebody who did watch it then, Simon, what was it like to watch? No, I didn't watch it, actually. I was at home. I I was doing the last two Tests of that series and then the one days. But I do distinctly remember giving up on England and, and thinking, well, there's no point. There's no point listening Thanks, to Simon. TMS through the night. Sorry, <laughs> Finney. Giving up on you, there's no point listening to TMS through the night. But you know what it's like when there's an Ashes match on. I'm sure lots of listeners will have this feeling. You, you, you wake up at various times of the night and you try to judge by how, how the commentator's talking, what the score is if they don't give it initially. And I, I must have woken up about 4.30 in the morning. I thought, they're still batting. What on earth? What on earth <laughs> going on? This is this is unprecedented, remarkable. So, you know, from a listener's point of view, it's an incredible experience to wake up to that, having not really given England much of a chance because they were 221 runs behind on first innings. Yeah, I mean, they, they were they were going to lose the game because it was 
A, logical, they'd probably lose the game, and B, it was the Gabba, and it's all coming back and so on. But it, it, it was remarkable. I mean, from, from our perspective, you know, I turn up at the ABC box uh, periodically during the day, and you've got a fair amount in there as well. I mean, the players think they get some stick. <laughs> I can promise you, when I crawl into the ABC box and they're all chirpy and full of themselves, and uh, you know, it, it, it can be pretty tricky being the only, the only POM in there as well. And of course, at the start of the, of that innings, they, you know, they, they thought they were going to win too. But then, of course, you know, just like it does out on the field, uh, you know, the, the, the volume goes down a bit, and uh, and you could and you could really feel the momentum. And, and but, you know, the pitch was flat. There's nothing wrong with the pitch. You've got those three players who are all totally capable of playing innings like that, and and they did. And 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 the way to, I mean, to come away from that was. You know, often in a drawn game, one team actually takes a huge amount away from a draw, especially the, the team that looked destined to lose. If you don't lose it, that's as good as a win. I remember going to Adelaide and we're checking into the hotel there, uh, and it's the first time I'd seen, I think, Cook since then. And we had a chat in the lobby, and um, you know, that's that real feeling of, of, of achievement. Not in, you know, they got away from the Gabba with a draw, but just the way that they had done it, and it really, it really made a statement about what that England team was capable of doing. I mean, other than that game, since uh, England had a, a fine win there in 86-7 with Ian Botham's final test century, um, the headline individual performance, um, in 1990-91, England took a 42-run first innings lead and still managed to lose by 10 wickets. So it's, it's been a pretty painful ground in various different ways. Um, but that said, Australia is on a one-match losing streak at Brisbane, <laughs> which might not sound like a lot, but they hadn't lost in their previous 31 tests at the ground between 1989 and their loss to India at, at the start of, of, of this year. So perhaps that some of that... third 11, wasn't it? Uh, well, <laughs> well we, we have talked about before that you know, yeah. India did pretty much everything you're not supposed mm. to do to win in Australia and still won, including winning that what was that, the final test of that series uh, at the Gabba. And, and that's an interesting point as well, Finney, isn't it? The fact that, you know, this it's the famous Tim Payne sledge to... Was it Rishabh Pant saying... Uh, can't wait to get you to the Gabba, mate. And then they and then they lost. Will that play on their minds at all? The, the, the members of the team who played in that Test match. I think there'll be some uneasy people in general in this game. Cricketers, as as just creatures of habit, we don't like feeling or being underprepared. And there's going to be a lot of guys who are going to go into this Test match feeling rusty, not up to speed, not up to Test match, um, the, not battle hardened by the warm-up games or any sort of competition. So I think players on both teams are going to be uneasy going into this first game, but also the mental scars that that loss against India may still have on the Australian team, I think could could certainly play into it. And England are going to have to use that to their advantage going into this first Test match, I feel, in order to try and take advantage of that. Mm. We should also remember as well, Simon, you know, you talk about the fine margins in sport, don't you? You know, the things that think, the way that you know games series can can go one way or another and I mean James Vince four years ago at, at the Gabba could have made it very different for England yeah brilliantly run out by Nathan Lyon it was just a, just a fraction of a you know, inch or whatever that, that and a wonderful piece of fielding who knows he could have gone on and got a big hundred mind you David Milan got a big hundred in Perth and you know, didn't kick on his test career stalled but he's he's back so you know even if he got a hundred it's not no guarantee that he would have gone on to have a, a really su- successful career but yeah Eng- England had a an opportunity in that match it felt batting first and at one stage they I mean, they got about 300 and Australia were 200 for seven and, and recovered and it felt like England were on top they've done t- quite well at some 
parts of sort of GABA test matches. They in in 2013 they did well as well. Australia 130 for six, and everyone's thinking, oh here we go again, England on top. They're gonna they're gonna go on and, and win the series because they just come off the back of, of beating them in England. But then Mitchell Johnson, someone called Mitchell Johnson, uh, got involved. <laughs> he had a pretty handy time of it. Well, it was extraordinary, wasn't it? So what are, what are our other GABA highlights, Simon? What about you? Well, my, f- my first Test match at the GABA was 94-5. And I distinctly remember that first ball from Phil De Freitas, which we've talked about a little bit. Short outside the off stump, cracked away by Slater, four runs. It just felt, all right, you know, that build-up we talked about at the start. And then it all sort of, it's nil-nil and it all dissipates. But I remember on the final day, uh, Glenn, Glenn McGrath uh, played in that Test match. And it was his eighth Test and he'd done sort of okay-ish. He'd, he'd taken his wickets at 38 so far. There was no sort of real indication that he was going to be, you know, one of the greats of all time. He's obviously a very promising bowler. He, he was out for naught. He didn't take a wicket in the match. And I remember it was sort of the early days of the Barmy Army. And Aggie was talking about the redevelopment of the ground. There was a little hill and the, the England fans were there. And they were chanting to Glenn McGrath, you're the worst bowler in the world. <laughs> <laughs> I... Not a word of a lie, you're the worst bowler in the world. And Glenn's response, it wasn't verbal, but there were one or, one or two fingers involved in his response to the bar. And I think it's fair to say, subsequently, you know, he did have his say, didn't he? He was 560. He didn't actually bowl very well in that game. No, he it's didn't. the first time I've seen him. Yeah. And I remember Jim Maxwell had been on about this yeah. chap, Glenn McGrath. And I thought, oh, OK, he's got, a bit, you know, he's got a bit to go yet. But, uh, yeah, he certainly made, <laughs> made up for it. Not for 101 in the match. Yeah. And a duck as well yeah. in his own innings. <laughs> yes, well, I think occasionally, you know, you can be proved wrong and the Barmy Army <laughs> conclusively were on that occasion. Finney, do you have, I mean, you clearly have some good memories of the Gabba, but you must have some pretty tough memories as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm lucky. The only test match that I've played at the Gabba, I took six for, although it was six for plenty, still took six wickets. Um and we drew that test match. I mean, tours after that, the 13-14 one um, was the tour that we lost 5-0. I didn't play at the Gabba, missed out um, and then had action problems and lost confidence in what I was doing. And the Gabba was sort of the start of that. You go around chasing your tail and the lonely walk. It's a long walk as well from the dressing room up like through the back of the stands. So you don't have to walk past people and then out the back door and, um, and into those nets. At the Gabba, um, you're sort of in a bowl with people looking at you. Um, and yeah, the training sessions there by myself on, in that series weren't the most um, mentally freshening memories that I have um, <laughs> inside my head. But yeah, you, I've experienced them and, and I've, I went back there subsequently and took a five for in an ODI. So I feel like I conquered those demons. But yeah, there are certainly some, some tricky memories there. And I think that it is one of those grounds where it's quite easy to have vivid memories of it because it's such a unique place. I haven't mentioned Simon Jones yet either, have we? Mm. I mean, that, oh. that horrendous injury. Because um, that was, that was that day day one. Yes. It was. And it was, you just, it was like the turf just sort of rolled up. He was running back from mid-on. I remember I was commentating and um, he sort of slipped and skidded and one of those sort of almost dive flick backs with all those things combined. And it, it was just like a roll of turf, just roll up underneath him. And I mean, it was, you could tell straight away that was a really nasty, nasty injury. And again, it was a, a terrible blow for him, but an, an awful way for, for the series to start. And it's one of the things that we actually talked about before the test matches that we've played there is that the grass is real thatchy. So in England, they're like bowling lawns, the outfields. And it's, you can dive, you can land on your knee however you want. And generally, unless it's really wet, 
your knee's not going to plug and you're not going to damage it. But the Simon Jones incident is something that we we actually spoke about before the test matches that we've had there in the sense that the grass is real thatchy and your your spikes plug in it, your knee, like everything plugs in it. So they're like, if it's a borderline call of 50-50, leave it alone mm. or, or find another way to stop it. Yeah. Don't go diving on your knee because it is the sort of place where you can do, do can yourself somebody remind damage. Mark Wood of that? Yeah, we need to remind them all of it. Yeah, we need to get this yeah. message out there. Don't dive. My last Gabba memory, the, basically the last thing that happened at a Gabba test match, was the Cameron Bancroft press conference <laughs> at the end of the last game when Australia won the match by 10 wickets. Bancroft on debut, quite a successful debut, made 82 not in the second innings. And there were rumours, suddenly rumours around that, he, that Johnny Bairstow had headbutted him. <laughs> And what earth is going on? And then Bancroft comes to the press conference and, and tells the story. It, di- it didn't sound like a, a headbutt at all. It was like a sort of bizarre sort of coming together of heads. In a, it was almost like a sort of friendly gesture. I mean, you, you, I don't know. I never heard of this before, Finney. No, I wasn't there, to be fair. But it, sounds, it sounded to me like, you know, in two footballers, like they want to act like they're hard and they're tough. So they like go foreheads yeah. against each other. But then they realise we're actually really not so yeah. <laughs> it sounded like one of those well, sorts of scenarios I remember, I remember Cameron Bancroft saying yeah they've weighed my head and I've got the heaviest head yeah. in the Australian <laughs> squad and it was Steve Smith sitting alongside him and falling about laughing it was bizarre a proper press it? story that though yeah. wasn't it it was a real beat up yeah. I've well, never been to a press conference like that it was yeah. unbelievable I mean, everyone it was an absolutely packed room of Australian English journalists and other journalists as well and people were utterly mesmerized. did he he did he headbutt him or not? And yeah, you're right. Steve Smith was was laughing alongside him, and then uh, presumably Joe Root came in afterwards, utterly sort of bemused by the whole thing. I can't <laughs> remember if Root had been in before or afterwards, but it was utterly, utterly surreal day. That mm, it really was. I but the bottom line was Australia crashed England by ten wickets. You know that, and that's often what happens at, at the Gabba. You know, it's such an important game. Absolutely. Just a few months later, Smith and Bancroft were sitting having a press conference in Cape Town in, yeah. in rather different circumstances. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan, I feel like we should finish on a, on a kind of a light note on one of the, the most famous Queensland stories, if it's not a Brisbane story, and that's David Gower and the Tiger Moth. Well, of course, yes, that wasn't at the, wasn't the Gabba, but it was, it was, it was on the Gold Coast, uh, where England, of course, have been warming up for this, uh, a place called Carrara. And they were playing a first-class match on, it's basically a rugby ground there uh, with floodlights up and so on. And it was a nice, gentle, casual sort of a warm-up, seem to recall. Uh, not much going on, a bit of a drive to get there. And um, who was batting at the time? We had uh, Alan Lamb and Robin Smith were batting at the time. Uh, one of them had just got 100, Lammy, I think. When suddenly, I was sitting with Chris Martin Jenkins, actually. You could hear in the distance a sort of rumbling noise. I thought, wonder what that is. And then, uh, you know... They, they weren't going terribly fast because tiger moths don't, but these, these, these biplanes just going down over our heads, really quite low, and, uh, and Lamb and Smith are both waving their bats, and the first one was followed by a second, and they sort of waggled their, waggled their wings and disappeared away into the floodlights. I remember CMJ saying, what on earth is that, or something sort of cursing. Oh, that's rather strange. And I was working for the Today newspaper at the time, and those days, a long time ago, but most newspapers had a photographer actually attached to them, if you like. And mine was called Adrian Morell. And he came to me during the next interval and said, just between us, I goes, um, I'll tell you who's in that aeroplane, because I've got pictures. It was Gower and Morris. I thought, really? So I'm a very naive, young tabloid journalist. I was in those days. Like, oh, crikey. So I think this might be a story. So I'm sitting there anxiously thinking about this all to myself, you know. It's a bit of fun. Somehow, it, it, I mean, I think Morell must have told someone else, because anyway, it, it got out more widely. And at the end of the day, there was this 
Simon mentioned this surreal press conference. I'll challenge him with this one, where Peter Lush came out, who was the manager, with Mickey Stewart. And I think it was Ian Todd from The Sun said, uh, any, any thoughts, Peter, on the, that, that fly pass there by David Gower and Morris? And there's an absolute sort of blank face on Lush's face. He had no idea. And I remember Mickey Stewart running out at the back. It was just like in a, in a gymnasium, shouting, anyone seen Gower? And this, this reply came back saying, he's gone for a run, manager. Which, of course, is complete <laughs> absurd. Gower never ran for anything. In fact, they were back at the airfield having more photographs taken because Graham Morris, another photographer who people will know, needed to get the pictures or he'd be in trouble with his office for not having the posters. So Gower and Morris are actually back there staging up more photographs and all their Biggles equipment. And, and I mean, the best line of it all, really... Was, was that Gower decided that he was going to go on this, hadn't got any money on him, so he approached Peter Lush to say, could I have a possibly afford all my expenses, uh, please, manager, for the next couple of weeks or so, I'm a bit short. So Peter Lush handed over some money, which, of course, inadvertently, he didn't realise was actually paying for the flight. <laughs> uh, Bruce McGarvey was the name of the pilot. How about that? For someone who wow. always forgets names. I'll never forget Bruce McGarvey, who I remember the quote said, uh, yeah, David wanted to drop some water bombs on the pitch, but I told him that wouldn't be a very good idea. So <laughs> off they went. And sadly, uh. the sad thing is that actually Gower and Gooch really fell out badly over that and it still sort of lingers in the background unfortunately because of course Gower was fined it all felt a bit inappropriate yeah I don't know cricketers today just yeah. very boring yeah, no character no no character <laughs> at all uh, thank you everybody thank you Finney Simon Andy and Agas uh, the latest Gabba Ashes story is about to be told and we'll have it all for you commentary on the first test from 11pm on the evening of the 7th of December and I'll be bringing you all the news on 5 Live Look out on this stream for more Ashes Tour Tales. And also don't miss Project Ashes, the special series that Agus has done with exclusive behind-the-scenes access over the last 12 months. England bowler James Anderson brings all the news from the team on Tailenders alongside Greg James and Felix White. And Mark Wood is among the guests you'll hear alongside Kate Cross and Alex Hartley on the No Balls podcast. That's also available on the TMS stream. This is the TMS Podcast from BBC Radio 5 Live. Match of the Day. Top 10 Podcast. Gary Lineker here to bring you a little message. Match of the Day. Top 10 Podcast is back once again exclusively on BBC Sounds. It's too late for me now, man. Yeah. yeah, it's too late. It's going to get some more dates for Match of the Day then. <laughs> Yes, myself, Alan, and the busiest man in football punditry, Micah Richards, return for Series 5. He was never going to Man City. Man United could never, ever have allowed Cristiano Ronaldo to have gone to Manchester City. The Match of the Day Top 10 podcast, only available on BBC Sounds.